All right, John chapter 3, verses 1. We're going to stop actually in 10. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and, he be, and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Let's pray. Uh, Father, here we have a story of a very wise man, a very uh, learned man, better way to say that, who doesn't understand what's going on. And we would ask that that would not be our story today. We ask that the Spirit would work where He wishes and whom He wishes so that we might understand. Lord, we have a picture of Nicodemus, brilliantly educated, knows far more about the Scriptures than most of us probably, and yet misses the point. And doesn't understand right now and is confused. Lord, may that not be the case for us. May you give understanding to your word. Might we follow in the path of the psalm, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. May we find wisdom today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> it's World Series time. Baseball, I'll use a baseball illustration, maybe the second time I've ever done that. <clears throat> no, I'm not really good at baseball, I'm sorry. But the big point you kind of see, though, in terms of World Series time in any baseball game are those kind of long fly balls on the back. Not the one that goes out, the, not the home run, those are fun. But the ones that kind of get everybody, uh, you know, kind of the nerves up and the, the heart pounding and the, you know, palms sweaty is the one where they hit it deep. And you're like, is the left fielder going to make it there in time? It's not going out of the park. It's going to stay inside. But is the outfielder going to be able to cut the gap and be where the ball is when the ball lands? And you think it's, it's not, I guess, really that difficult, I guess, maybe? Until you start to think about actually how small of an angle we're talking about. The ball comes off the bat and goes 380 feet that way. Or maybe you're just, let's say, five degrees off. The outfielder watches the ball pop up, and instead of being in the right place where the ball should fall, he's 
25, 30, 40 feet away from just a matter of tiny little degrees. How small of an angle change can produce such a drastically different result? It's the, simple between, uh, it's the difference between a simple, easy fly ball that's caught and thrown in and no big deal or an error that gets stuck in the corner and suddenly it's a triple. Something so small as being able to delineate right here from two degrees different or three degrees different or four degrees different. How a very small difference in angle makes a really big difference down the road. And it's important to understand when it comes to biblical doctrines. Because biblical doctrines all have consequences. Theology always has consequences. You can't believe something and not have it produce a result down the road. Every belief has some sort of consequence in our thoughts, in our words, in our emotions, in our actions. And those foundational ones are the most important. Because if we get those foundational doctrines two or three or four or five degrees off, well, who knows where we end up and how divergent we are from the right answer. Here in John chapter 3, he's going to take up the doctrine of salvation. We've kind of boiled that down in America to talk about only conversion. That's not what he's dealing with. But the doctrine of salvation. And Lord willing, as we look at that text, we're going to make sure we kind of all get on the same page, get that little variety of angle taken out so that we may rightly see what salvation looks like according to the Bible. What salvation looks like according to the Bible. Now, in order to understand that, we have to kind of know a little bit about what's going on. And some of us are familiar with Nicodemus and Pharisees and Jews and all of those things. And if you are, I'm going to encourage you to not go, well, I've already know this passage. I got it like memorized. I, I got it. Okay, great. That's good. That's wonderful. Listen anyways and do your best to listen with fresh ears. To submit yourself to the word regardless of its familiarity so that its familiarity might not breed contempt. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. A Pharisee would have been a spiritual leader of the day. There are two camps, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees are kind of what we would think of more like uh, liberals, uh, theological liberals. Like they don't believe in the resurrection. They kind of, uh, they get a little kind of quirky in that regard. They don't believe in supernatural stuff. It's kind of just uh, what most of mainline American churches believe today. The Pharisees, on the other hand, would have been the guys that most of us or gals would have really enjoyed. They're the ones that, in theory, took the Bible seriously. They're the ones that, in theory, had all of their religion impact their daily living. So much so that they attempted to have every single action governed by their religion. And for most of us, those are going to be the type of people that we really enjoy hanging out with. I mean, the people that are like, well, what do the scriptures say? What does Christianity say about X? Well, that's how I should behave. I mean, those are people that I I tend to really enjoy being with. The problem with that is that the Pharisees are always the bad guy in the story. And that's a bit of a challenge for us, as they're the ones that we emotionally would connect with the most easily. 
They're the ones that if we met, one of them came right in here to worship again, we'd probably go, all right, I like you. You're a good dude. You're a nice lady. All right. And the problem with the Pharisees is that they had taken all of religion, all of their Judaism, and reduced it. Right? They had, like in the kitchen where you take a sauce and you boil it down to there's that, just that little bit of like sludge that's left, but super, super full of flavor. They had reduced all of their religion to one thing, and that is externals. They had taken all of the law of the Old Testament, all of the, the, the biblical spiritual truth of the Old Testament, and kind of condensed it into one little flavor cube of external behavior. <laughs> So if you ask them, what is the heart of what Judaism is, they would say, being a good person. Which is honestly a bit problematic for us because uh, that is very much the DNA of the American church. I've told you, I, I love doing the new member interviews. It's my favorite part of the job I get to do. But I always cringe until I know I'm not going to get that answer. Why should you go to heaven? Well, because I'm a good person. Okay, we've got to have another conversation because that's not okay. At that point, you've articulated the primary doctrine of the Pharisees, the bad guys in all of the Gospels. I am a good person. And suddenly you're the enemy of Jesus. That is the important foundation to get here. Nicodemus is the enemy of Jesus, and the reason being is because he's a guy who arrives in the story believing he's already good enough. Now, on top of that, we have more information given about him. He is a ruler of the Jews, which would have put him not just as a general Pharisee, but would have put him as one of the 70 rulers in the synagogue. So he would have been kind of like um, a part lawyer, part theologian, and then, oh yeah, by the way, he got put on the Supreme Court. So this man is uh, loaded. He's really, really wealthy. We're going to find this out at the end of this book. This guy has serious bankroll going. Tons of money. Uh, he would have been supremely educated. Again, knows way more about the Old Testament than most of us in here. Really a whole lot. Uh, he would have been incredibly powerful. Uh, and he would have been, at this point, most likely, I'm, I'm assuming he's actually functioning as a, delegation, uh, as a delegate for a group of folks. This conversation is political at its very core. It is loaded and it is dangerous. This would have been like, you know, this is having a conversation with a lion where you're not ready, uh, not really entirely sure at what point it's going to rip your face off, but it, you know it's trying to. Uh, that's what this entire conversation is. We find out another piece of information about the story uh, that is uh, very important. In verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. And there has been lots and lots of speculation as to why John includes this detail. And I'm gently going to take probably a slightly different view than many of you have heard in sermons. Some of you have heard it's because he's uh, embarrassed to talk with Jesus uh, in public. Nah, I don't think that's it, uh, particularly considering he's about to scold him in just a second. I, I don't think that's it. Uh, he's functioning as a delegate for a group of people. He's going to use plural pronouns the vast majority of the way. He's not embarrassed about anything. He's representing other people. I think it actually goes back to John chapter 1. We've only heard darkness mentioned in one other context. 
in this book so far, and John's already kind of helping clue us in on what's happening. In the beginning was the Word, and he would show up, and in the darkness, the men would reject him. And so John is setting actually a physical stage for us so that we understand now what's happening here is a conversation between a man who has already rejected Jesus and the Lord of light and the Lord of life himself. The very oppression of the room would flavor the conversation so you know what's happening. Nicodemus is lost. He's in the darkness. He's rejected him. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not understood it. The darkness will not overcome it. A man in darkness uh, and a big deal. Now, that being said, jump into it. What, what is this going to show us about the nature of salvation? All right, so we have a guy who's a good guy. Uh, th- this is not like if you ever watch those, uh, again, on the History Channel, everything on the History Channel, uh, where they interview people that have been abducted by aliens. <laughs> and you always go, well, seriously, you, you could be a little bit more credible. You know, the guy's like, well, I was out running the woods. I'd had, you know, half a keg of such and such. And uh, they got me and suddenly I woke up halfway across town. And you're like, Well, no kidding, obviously. <laughs> no credibility at all. Right? There's no reason why I should believe any word of testimony about what you say about your abduction. Nicodemus is actually included for the counterpoint. Out of all of the people in Israel, there is maybe no one else that would be more respectable and more significant for a conversation with Jesus. He's the anti-type to the drunk redneck that was abducted by aliens. He's the exact opposite. He's moral. He's obedient. He, is, uh, he lives a good life. He's a good neighbor. He's never been arrested. He's never been in trouble with the law. He knows the Bible. He reads it, comp- Old Testament, reads it compulsively, has massive chunks of it memorized. And, you know, he bathes himself with proper hygiene, doesn't stink when he goes to church. You know, I mean, all of the standard things that would make him the type of guy that if he were to walk in here, we would all immediately flock to him and say, we like you. And it's in the, in the midst of him, this great and wonderful, the, the best of the kind of guys that we see what salvation looks like. The first thing is to see it's not found in a particularly positive view of Jesus. Meaning it's not in, well, Jesus was a good guy theology. Look at what Nicodemus starts with. He comes to Jesus by night in the midst of darkness, in the midst of, you know, kind of this back, background idea of he's lost. And he starts and says, Rabbi, now that, that actually, I, I think is probably a bit patronizing, but it's impressive that he would include that at all. Nicodemus, the Supreme Court Justice of sorts, ultra-rich, ultra-elite, ultra-educated, talking to a borderline homeless carpenter who has very little education, who isn't really respectable, and the disciples that he has are reject fishermen that he found kind of out hanging on the shore, that all of them probably smelled bad, none of them had bathed correctly, and were an absolute mess. And he uses a term that would have put him on peer status. Rabbi, teacher. A respectful term, which actually I think would have been kind of fairly shocking uh, in some sense. But he's very, very polite, very civil. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. This is actually an even bigger statement. 
Obviously, you have some sort of divine authority of some kind. Why? Because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Well, what signs are we talking about? Well, the wedding feast at Cana, you don't make 750 bottles of wine out of just plain water and not have that story spread a little bit. You don't miraculously create a year's wages worth of alcohol and not have people kind of notice that and the story kind of leak out. And then on top of that, when you go into the temple in the middle of the busiest temple week of the year and then drive everybody out of it with a whip, well, yeah, that kind of makes an impression as well. But then on top of that, and we didn't spend that much time on that this week, or last week, verse 23 of the previous chapter. Now when he's in Jerusalem at Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So while he's at Passover week and while he is interacting in the temple and he's interacting with the crowds, he's performing miracles on a daily basis. Likely like dozens of times a day to testify that he is the very son of God. And suddenly you begin to see why Nicodemus' conversation is both very, very political and very, very dangerous. They've sent the best of the best to go figure out what exactly is this guy up to. The status quo has been upset. And those that are in power want to know what's happening. It's actually kind of like what we're watching in the whole political sphere in America right now. The whole status quo has been upset. Nobody can figure out what's going on, and everybody's uncomfortable. (laughs) It's very much the same thing in Jerusalem at the time. They they don't know who's going to win. They don't know who's going to come out on top, and nobody's thrilled about that except for Jesus. And so he begins with this question. Look, you're a good guy. I mean, you're a teacher-ish probably, but okay, well, we'll leave out the ish right now. You're a teacher, and you have some sort of power because you're doing signs. And we'll even go so far as to say that you are from God. Now, he doesn't get to finish the rest of his speech because Jesus cuts him off, doesn't get his question in, doesn't finish whatever else patronizing stuff he's going to say, whatever trap he's going to lay for Jesus. But it's interesting, his opening kind of ploy is to say, look, Jesus, I think you're a good guy. You're a good guy. I mean, you might even be a great guy, but you're a good guy. You're all right by me. You're you're okay. And it's interesting, Jesus is going to obliterate his answer in the next couple of sentences, painfully so almost. It would have been really a big slap in the face that this brilliant teacher, the finest mind of a generation, one of those types of guys, is going to get uh, humiliated and embarrassed by a carpenter with no education. It's going to go badly for him shortly. But it's interesting that Jesus' response is so sharp and pointed to a positive compliment. You're a good guy, Jesus. Now, I would put maybe this in kind of a a little bit more of a modern context. What does that look like today? Do we see this happening in the world around us? And I would say, yes, everywhere. This idea that Christianity is good and Jesus is good, but it's just kind of good to be a religious person. You'll see it on the bumper stickers that say coexist and say, well, Christianity is good and the cross is good. And that's kind of a really ironic thing. Lethal injection is good. It's saying he's just this kind of nice, moral, positive influence kind of guy. He's a good guy, but he's not the guy. 
In fact, you'll hear it saying stuff like, you know, I love Christianity. It's just such a positive influence on people. I wish more people went to church because it's a positive influence. Well, yeah, it is a positive influence. That's right. I mean, that's, that's not wrong. It's tragically missing the point, though. Because it's confusing good with better and with best and with unique. It's muddying the waters to say, well, you know, Christ is a good guy. Is that true? Well, absolutely it's true. It's true in every sense of the word. He's righteous. He's a you know, great citizen. He was a great neighbor. Yes. But that's not the entirety of the story. And that's what John's going to show us in the rest of the book is that he, he's a good citizen. He's a good neighbor. He's a good friend. He's a, a good brother. He's a good son on the cross. He's caring for his mother. He's a good person. But that's not the whole story. Otherwise, the demons would be just fine with him. Because he's a good guy. I mean, I like him. He's a good neighbor. He's all right. It's not okay. Salvation is not just admitting that Jesus is a good guy. It's not just saying, look, he was really nice. I like what he taught. He teaches us to treat others the way that we want to be treated. He teaches us to be nice to each other. I mean, I was raised in a culture of nice. It gets really tiresome. (laughs) Jesus is not this ultra nice guy. In fact, actually, remember, he just beat people with a whip to get him out of the temple. Like, let's remember that. All right, so your first point there is that salvation is not just admitting that Jesus is a nice guy. It's not just taking a positive view of Jesus. That's not simply enough. Secondly is understanding that salvation is not from the natural man. It's not a natural thing. Nicodemus comes in with this kind of positive, I would say pandering, but positive uh, statement towards Jesus. Jesus answers him, oh no, buckle up. It gets really ugly quickly. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we don't speak Greek, most of us, and so we would kind of not see on the surface he's giving a tremendous wordplay. It could easily be translated, one is born again. That's the one your English Bible takes. Most of you, if you're in the ESV, certainly it's got a footnote at the bottom where it could say, from above. So you have this double entendre right there, just right like blatantly on the surface. You cannot get past it unless one is either born again or born from above. Another way to say that is begotten from heaven. Yeah, it's a little bit stronger of a term, isn't it? Unless one is this condition, one cannot even see the kingdom of God. Now we're going to figure out very quickly, Nicodemus, being of the Pharisee who has reduced all of spirituality to things I can do, I can, you know, obey, jumps on the born again aspect of it. <laughs> How do I fit back inside my mother's stomach? It doesn't make any sense. I can't. He, he's missing the whole point of this, which is this is, this is language that can't be fulfilled. You can't be born again a second time. That'd be horribly uncomfortable. I mean, at best. Uh, you, more than that, though, is there's an even bigger issue of how in the world do you get born from heaven? I mean, how do you get begotten from heaven? I don't even know how to go about figuring out what that would look like. And that's the question that Jesus presents to him. Unless a person is, and again, wordplay, born twice, or born from heaven, born from above, 
then he can't even see the kingdom of God. And suddenly Nicodemus' argument has unraveled like a very badly made sweater. It is a wreck. Because here he's missed the point of the question, and by missing the point of the question, he's already admitted that he can't even see the kingdom of heaven. He can't see the kingdom of God. Here you have a man brilliantly educated in the Old Testament who understands it all, who can't even get it. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't know what to do with it. Salvation is not from natural man. And it's interesting if we are going to kind of, again, remember those two or three or four or five degrees make a really big difference when you get kind of miles down the road. To let that kind of thinking subtly creep into your doctrine of salvation has catastrophic consequences in the end. Because one view is going to say, look, salvation means you're being born from heaven. And the only way you can be born from heaven is for heaven to be in charge of this. Those two, three, four, five degrees when you get down the road is going to very quietly and very cleverly elevate the role of the man. Which I would say is kind of comical, again, using even the birth analogy. Because as I understand it, I've never had a baby, but as I understand it, babies don't get a whole lot of say in being born. They don't get to do the hard work. They don't get to be told to push. They don't have to do any of those things. They just kind of go along for the ride. I guess they maybe might be able to make it a little bit more difficult. But even then, I don't think they have that much say. He's using an illustration that's designed to keep man's influence at a low level in salvation. And yet it kind of constantly creeps and creeps and creeps up. We talk about the Reformation, 1517, Luther posts his 95 theses on the wall, Wittenberg door, kind of like a message board, be like posting it on Facebook or something today, I guess. I can't believe I even referenced that, but it's probably true. They're already having this conversation just a matter of years afterwards. As the Reformation takes full swing, constantly having to redefine because humanity is trying to get the natural man into the salvation thing. Just say, well, it's my choice. I mean, I'll be fine. I can choose whenever I want to choose. I'll be, I'm a good enough person and I'll be okay. I'm in charge of my own destiny. I am my own king. Okay, so there's kind of correction number two. It's not, salvation's not of the natural man. All right, correction number three. Salvation is not accomplished at an external level. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he's all right? Uh, Just on, if we're going to be honest, most of us, when we read verse four, if you've been in the church for any long period of time, you automatically assume Nicodemus is an idiot, right? (laughs) Let's just be honest. If you've read this a bunch of times, you assume he's an idiot. The problem is this guy's IQ is through the roof. He's very, very clever man. This is not the question of a fool. Well, it is a question of a fool, but not a question of a, a person who's unintelligent. It's not that he's sitting there going, I don't understand the words you're saying. Help me. It's not that. What he's doing instead is he's actually counterpointing and trying to break up Jesus' argument. You're talking about a second birth. Everybody knows that's impossible. 
you, sir, are crazy. That's gently what he's kind of calling him out on. How is it possible? Everyone knows you can't enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born. Nicodemus is a full-grown man. May not be old, but he's certainly a full-grown man, and there's no way that's happening again. And he's calling Jesus on it. This is impossible, sir. How dare you speak of this? Well, you know what? It's also impossible to turn water into wine, and it's impossible to do the other things that he's doing, but yet here's your hang-up. And the reason being is because Nicodemus has reduced salvation simply to an external level. Again, it comes down to that I'm a good person and I do good things. Jesus, how can you speak this way? How can you speak about salvation in a way that doesn't fit my natural and normal senses? It doesn't confirm with science. We can't document this in a physics class or in a chemistry laboratory. What are you talking about? This doesn't fit what our scientists would tell us. It's not confirmable with our knowledge of creation. Because Nicodemus has made it too small. He's made it about something that just happens externally. And this is one of the great challenges in the church is to make sure that people understand Christianity is at its core not about keeping the Ten Commandments. It's not. Absolutely not. At its core. Now, it's a consequence. (laughs) But it's not the doorway. So many of us grew up in a, a church experience or a knowledge of the Bible or a knowledge of the gospel where we thought the door to enter into Christianity is obeying the Ten Commandments. As long as I don't murder, as long as I don't steal, as long as I don't covet or commit adultery or do those other things that whatever church elevates as the 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th commandments, whatever those things are, as long as I do that, I'm welcome in because that's the doorway to heaven. It's external. And Nicodemus is missing the entire point that salvation is at the Bible, the way, certainly the way Jesus talks about it, it's an internal thing. It's a transformed heart. A heart that's brought from death into life. It's what we read in 2 Corinthians. It's being made new. It's being made alive. It is something that has external consequences. But it's done inside. It's done inside. It's not something that we can even witness in that regard because it's done inside of people. And I would suggest maybe this might be the greatest corrective that the American church needs because we have so much as a nation, as a culture, and as the American church picked up a theology of good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That's the theology of the nation, so to speak. As long as I'm a good person, I'm okay in the end, and a bad person, well, they run into problems. The problem is that that's not, this is not true. In any way, that's just not true. Because there are lots of people that on the outside seem good, that have no knowledge of Christ, and are dead inside and have no hope. And there are lots of people that are absolute wretches of humans, Apostle Paul, who turn out great in the end. We have so many of those stories. I read this week of John Newton. It was a biography I had to read this week. 
Newton was a horrible human. Absolutely horrible. He was a slave for a number of years. And when he was finally able to work his way out of slavery, what do you think he immediately did? If you were a slave, what's the one thing you'd never, ever consider doing? Oh, yeah, he went to be a slaver. And he ran slaves and he went and captured them in Africa and took them all over the world and sold them. And it was a horrible, horrible human. Until the Lord changed his heart. He turned out to be a brilliant pastor with an unbelievably warm heart. And his ministry was flavored by kindness and charity everywhere. Because the Lord changed him from the inside out, not the outside in. I would also just gently suggest as our culture continues to sour and continues to kind of go down the toilet and the flushing away thing, it's going to be increasingly important for the church to be sure to hold this line. Christianity is not equated with external actions only. It's an internal transformation first and foremost. All right, well, let's continue. What's the next corrective? Corrective number four. Jesus continuing the, uh, the onslaught in verse 5 begins to explain salvation doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God himself. Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's already told Nicodemus that unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus in verse 4 demonstrates he has absolutely zero concept of what that means. Totally lost on him. It's like they started speaking Romanian. He just doesn't get it. It's gone. Um, So verse 5, Jesus continues. But here, instead of highlighting the internal aspect of salvation, he's going to highlight the divine aspect of salvation. Uh, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, and honestly, the water part, we don't entirely know what that means. Being blunt. There are some that thinks that refers to baptism. There are some that thinks that refers to uh, actually being born once, like physical birth, which I don't think that's the case because John the Baptist was converted prior to being born, but that's a different story altogether. The whole point being those, we actually kind of have to submit to this to say, we're not entirely sure what it means, but we do know what the Spirit means. And that's the whole point is, this doesn't belong to me. I'm not in charge of the show. I'm not the one driving the train. I'm not the one steering the car. I'm not the one holding the reins to the horse. It is God's and not mine. The Spirit is in charge. The Father is in charge. King Jesus is in charge. And unless one is born of the Spirit of God, unless he has salvation from heaven, he will not know the Lord. In fact, verse 6 continues this. That which is born of the flesh, it's earthly. Um, it stays that way. That which is, another way to say this, that which is natural is natural. Well, thank you, John. That's very helpful. Uh, it's what the word actually means. If it's from this place, this earth, it belongs to this place and this earth. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So if it belongs to heaven, it's going to be owned and maintained and kept by heaven. Salvation belongs not to this earth, but it belongs to heaven. It belongs to God, so it's his to do with as he wishes. It's his to maintain. It's his to keep. It's his to watch over. And very quickly, as I'm running late and long, salvation uh, is uh, witnessed by its results. This is where you begin to see the Ten Commandments in its proper place. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So don't, don't be concerned about salvation. Why? The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, where it goes. For so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. You can't control the wind. 
In fact, you actually don't even know when the wind is blowing. The only thing you know about the wind are its effects. You can't see when the wind is at work. All you see are the leaves blowing or the little dust devils turning or, as the case of the last months here, buildings blowing over and falling down or trees or whatever. You don't see the wind, you see the consequences of it. Likewise, you don't see the work of the Spirit because you have no idea what that even looks like. But you can see the consequences. You don't know where the Spirit is. I don't know whose hearts He's working in right now, and I don't know how He's working. I have genuinely no idea. It's not given to me. But I do get to watch the consequences of it. I get to watch those that are transformed internally, and when they are transformed internally, there are exterior, external consequences. It's what makes kind of doctor, like medicine, such a feasible thing. The sicknesses happen inside the body, but there are external consequences. That's how we realize we're ill. We have symptoms. We have things that are shown from what's going on the inside. Same thing with salvation. We don't know what God is doing on the inside of hearts, but we can watch the results. Watch the results. Well, why is this a big deal? Well, one, very quickly applying the passage, putting it to use. One is to make sure you're ready at the last day. You heard me preach last Sunday night, preach the gospel last Sunday morning. On the Sunday morning before that, explicitly making you ready so that when you die, you are prepared to go home. And that was the whole point of last Sunday evening. We had a man who was ready to die, who was ready to go home. I followed in his lead and tried to help you be ready as well. That's what John is doing for us. That's what Jesus is doing for us, is making us ready. So when our name is called, it's time to go home and it's okay. We know where we stand. It's so that when we get to the afterlife, when we face Judgment Day, we have answers to those questions and good answers. You know, so when we stand before the Lord and we have to review our life and all the things that we've done, both good and evil, and suddenly see all of the depths of the depravity of our motives and our heart and all of those bad things, that we can say, oh no, I'm going to have to trust in Jesus because I know I can't trust in me. And you have that answer now, and you're ready. For those that pass into the afterlife, trusting in themselves, have no hope at all. So to make us ready to die. But even more so is to make us ready to live and not live unto ourselves, but to live unto Christ. Because when we begin to understand salvation, we begin to see the beauty of what God is doing. I mean, think about this. It's not simply found in a a good view of Jesus, because he's the only one. John's going to pick this up in the following chapters. He's he's the only life. He's the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only resurrection. He's the only one. It's not just a good view. It's the only view. Okay, that's going to be great. And it's not a natural thing. It's not something like we just normally do, like, oh, it's like part of how families work. It's just a normal... No, it's supernatural. God is in charge. And it's not something that's just done on the outside that just makes us kind of look better. It's like washing the outside of a cup that you never clean on the inside. No, it's transforming all the way through. And God is in charge of it. As we begin to understand salvation this way, it's going to stir up gratitude. Thanksgiving, worship and praise. And it will keep us humble. 
Now, there has been said, and very quickly, one quick application on top of this, that Reformed folks like us have at points in church history been maybe, we'll say, a little bit smug about our theology. Which, at what point, I would say, it means you don't understand our theology. And understanding a doctrine of salvation like John is teaching will keep us humble to the end. Because I have been the recipient of a tremendous gift I never earned. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, your truth. Thank you for your son's sacrifice for us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy in King Jesus. Forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for our hate. Forgive us for all of the evil things in our soul. Transform us in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.